Hello listeners and welcome to Deep Breaths, a podcast covering topics related to the part two anaesthetic exam. I'm Dr. Kate McCrossan. And I'm Dr. Kate Steele. And today's episode is If I Only Had a Perfused Brain with a very special guest interviewer, Dr. Yasmin Waitley. We'll be covering anaesthesia for endovascular thrombectomy for acute ischemic stroke. As always on this podcast, we represent our own views and not those of our employers or ANSCA. Dr. Yasmin Waitley is a staff specialist at the Royal Brisbane and Women's Hospital. She is a supervisor of training and a fellowship examiner. Her interest areas are vascular surgery and obstetrics. When she's not at work, she's keeping up with her two kids and a dog. Yasmin will be joining us from time to time on Deep Breaths, where she will interview a consultant anaesthetist and pick their brain about how to approach different procedures in different settings. We are thrilled to have her on the podcast. So take it away, Yasmin. Today, we'll be talking about endovascular clot retrieval with Dr. Wendy Morris. Wendy is a staff specialist anaesthetist at the Royal Brisbane Hospital and has a particular interest in anaesthesia for neurosurgery and neuroradiology. She's done fellowships in neuroanesthesia in Australia and in her native Scotland at the Edinburgh Royal Infirmary. Wendy's a friend of mine, and it's great to have her here on the podcast. Wendy, today we're going to pick your brains about how you manage anesthesia for endovascular thrombectomy for acute ischemic stroke, or much more easily called clot clot retrieval. (laughs) So let's start with a case. So Wendy, you get a phone call that a patient is on their way from another hospital the little bit of history that you get is that Mrs. McIntosh is a 67-year-old woman. She's got a history of hypertension and diabetes. She was making breakfast this morning when she had a funny turn witnessed by her husband. He then took her into their local hospital and she's now being transferred to your hospital, the Stroke Centre. So tell me, when you get this phone call, what are you thinking about at this point? That's probably as much information as you ever get when you get the first phone call when someone's in um, transit and it's often you you don't know how long they're going to be. Um, But it sounds like this woman was pretty lucky. She had early recognition of her symptoms and that's going to increase the chances of a good outcome um, and also her medical options. You've got the call. What do you expect to, to have already happened? She'll have had quite a lot of intervention, I would imagine. She will have um, been identified as a potential stroke patient, had at least a non-contrast brain CT, especially if she was within within that four-hour time frame for potential thrombolysis to exclude any hemorrhagic stroke. And she will have had discussion between probably a stroke physician um, and an interventional radiologist that she's a potential candidate for clot retrieval. So until recently, all the studies showed that there really there was no benefit beyond six to seven hours for clot retrieval. But with some improvements in devices, that's increased the time that they'll look at doing it, which has been a huge game changer for people who kind of have had a stroke on waking or were last seen well less than 24 hours ago. So as long as they have good radiological signs, then up to 24 hours when they're doing clot retrievals. So what they need is a good-looking penumbra, so the um, surrounding area of of ischemia that looks good and favourable for revascularisation, which is why those times have have extended. Some of the patients may come to you having already had thrombolysis. Definitely, they should be done in conjunction with each other, um, and one does not exclude the other. So we may end up doing clot retrievers on patients who have already had thrombolysis or have thrombolysis running. 
Is there anything else that they look at besides the radiological imaging to decide if a patient's suitable for clot retrieval? I think there's definitely a discussion that goes on between the stroke physicians and the interventional radiologists about their pre-morbid functional status and how sick they are, what their comorbidities are. Um, so they do take into account the whole range of patient risk factors um, and expected recovery before they make this decision. So speaking of comorbidities, is, is Mrs. McIntosh our patient? Is she a typical patient? I think she is. She's got she's um, in her seventh decade. She's got a few comorbidities like diabetes and hypertension. But I've certainly seen a range of patients present for clot retrieval, including some very young, young people. What symptoms might you be looking for when she presents to you? A lot of those symptoms will depend on the area that obviously she's infarcted. So the majority of strokes are anterior, about 20 to 30% of them are posterior strokes, and they present in quite different ways. But obviously strokes can have a multitude of, uh, of different symptoms. Um, posterior strokes, the big risk is that you have a, a decreased conscious level. But across the board, about 30% of strokes will have dysphagia symptoms, and that would be something really pertinent to know for general anaesthetic. In most hospitals, you're going to be doing clot retrieval in the radiology suite. What should registrars be thinking about when they're in this environment? So we're talking about remote, remote location anaesthesia with all of the, the problems that that has. So you should hopefully be very familiar with your remote location before you're starting. Positioning and the ergonomics of line placement and securing those lines I think is really important because you have very limited access to the patient sometimes, the table's moving around, you've got the radiation risk and so you've got quite limited access to the patient. Where do you tend to place the lines? Is there a, a better place to put them? Left-sided usually, but I don't usually go and change the line placement if they've already come in from the ambulance service with the right-sided. I'll just make sure that all of my lines have really long extensions and they're all secured really well. Because the radiologist will be standing on the patient's right side? Usually, and I think most interventional suites are pretty similar. In the radiology suite, you've got to think about that big C-arm as well. How's that going to move in this setting? So it's going to spin in three dimensions. And so uh, making sure their head is completely free, being really pedantic about where you've put the cuff of your endotracheal balloon, the ECG leads, try to think about what the radiologist is going to need to do and they need to visualise up to the aortic arch and then up the carotid. So anything that's um, radio-opaque is going to be problematic for them. And you mentioned radiation before. How much radiation is there in this kind of procedure? Lots. That's my, my medical answer, lots. <laughs> lots, yes. <laughs> um, so they do DSA runs. So it's high-dose radiation, a lot of contrast as well with the, the risk of contrast nephropathy. And the interventional radiologists are optimally placed for protection from the radiation because they've got a lot of screens and shields. Radiation scatters and there may not be so much protection on the anaesthetic side of the room. So always just be aware of keeping your distance as much as possible and being away from the patient as much as possible. So let's talk about anaesthesia, which is 
where the meat of it is for us, yep. isn't it? So what are you trying to achieve with your anaesthetic for these patients? Well, the radiologists would prefer to have a patient who is not moving and they would like that as quick as possible um, because time is brain. So this is an emergent um, and time-limited procedure. So whatever we need to do, we need to do it as rapidly as possible. And sometimes that's going to be a general anaesthetic and sometimes that will only require to be sedation. So how do you make that decision? That's the question. Well, at present, there's no evidence-based little algorithm that you can use to, to make that decision. So we've got to go on a lot of clinical factors. Whether the patient is cooperative, I think, is quite a good indication because you need if someone has got um, receptive dysphagia and they don't understand what they're being asked to do, it's difficult for them to cooperate and to stay still. I talked about posterior strokes and they have more risk of loss of consciousness. The risks of airway compromise and aspiration, um, a lot of these patients do have dysphagia, um, so that will definitely influence what you're doing. So really you're doing a very complex risk-benefit analysis looking at the patient and all those other factors when it comes to down to making a decision about general anaesthetic versus sedation. How much of a factor is the time it takes to do a general anaesthetic? We know that doing a general anaesthetic probably only increases the um, time prior to needle to skin by about 10 minutes. And I guess it's what's unknown is when that a rapid workflow becomes unsafe when you're trying to provide a general anaesthetic with quite limited information about the patient. The patient might not be able to tell you very much about their history and you're having to go on that limited information. But the majority of patients I do are general anaesthetics now. It means that you've not got that risk of having to convert potentially to a general anaesthetic in the middle of the procedure, which is going to be a lot more disruptive time-wise. No matter what, you're not going to make this decision alone, though, are you? Oh, no, I'm going to be discussing it with the interventional radiologists. They, at the end of the day, will know whether this is going to be a procedure that's going to be quick and take 30 minutes or it's going to be much more complicated and need to use um, carotid stents or things like that. So definitely I'm usually guided by the radiologists and they usually want a general anaesthetic. What's the best technique then for giving a general anaesthetic in these patients? Um, I don't think one particular technique makes a difference over the other. There's certainly not any, any evidence that that's the case, but really tight proactive control of the blood pressure is going to be the most important thing to do however you choose to do that. So why is blood pressure so important for these patients? Well, usually these patients are hypertensive already chronically and often they'll come in acutely hypertensive as well. And that hypertension possibly reflects the fact that they're trying to maintain perfusion um, to bits of brain that are compromised. The Society for Neuroscience and Anesthesia and Critical Care have quite comprehensive guidelines um, for targets, which are moderately evidence-based and I think we'll have a lot more understanding in the next couple of years as we get some more more evidence. But maintaining your blood pressure between 140 and 180 systolic or maintaining them as close as possible to what they came in at I think is really important. So really aggressive vasopressor management from the outset with whatever you're doing. Yeah, 140 is much higher than than your standard target. Yes. 
And if they don't have any thrombolysis and no evidence of hemorrhage, there's some evidence that keeping them even above 180 systolic would be the best. But whatever you do, you want to avoid any um, impairment in, um, in blood pressure and really try and target their map as much as possible to what they came in to maintain it. Okay, so you're going to keep this patient's blood pressure very high. Obviously, you're dealing with fluctuations in stimulation for the patient. How do you go about keeping their blood pressure in this much higher map and systolic range? And what are the points in the procedure that you might be looking out for? Um, The majority of the procedure is pretty unstimulating once you get past the laryngoscopy. So... I usually start with a high dose infusion of metraminol or whatever your vasopressor of, of choice is and try and wean it back as opposed to starting to bolus because you're worried about losing control of um, and going into hypotension. They're usually already somewhat neurologically compromised, so I do give very small doses of whatever induction tool maintenance agent I'm going to use. Does that mean that you aren't necessarily doing a rapid sequence induction for these patients? I usually use a high, a, a large dose of rock, but I wouldn't always do a formal rapid sequence induction, no. So to keep this beautifully tightly controlled blood pressure, you're going to want an arterial line, aren't you? How are you going to do that? I'm not going to try. I would very rarely try um, to get an art line in before the patient goes off to sleep. I cycle the blood pressure minutely or two minutely for induction and rapidly you're going to have a femoral artery line that you can slave off of and run continuous arterial monitoring from the time you've got that sheath in. And then if you think you're going to need an arterial line for post-operative, you can um, put that in towards the end of the procedure. So for those who haven't seen it, you talked about slaving off the femoral artery line. So that's the that's the sheath that the interventional radiologist puts in. Practically, how do you set that up? How do you do that? I just set up a normal arterial line set with a long extension and the interventionist will usually pass you out um, an extension tube attached to the femoral sheath. And then you just have to have quite a clear communication when you're connecting that and making sure there's no bubble. So they might want you to flush the line just as they're turning it on. And then you should have uh, arterial line tracing until the end of the procedure. Very occasionally, I sometimes see that the tracing gets damped or um, is impaired slightly. And sometimes that's just to do with the positioning of the femoral line access. And I just talk to the radiologist and usually they can say whether they're expecting that or not. So if you do see any sudden change in your blood pressure, what are you concerned about? Um, I'd be concerned that there's been a dissection or a hemorrhage. So um, I would speak to the interventionist very quickly. So sometimes we do heparinize in these cases, especially if they want to deploy stents. So if there is a sudden hypertension and you're concerned about um, hemorrhage, then definitely have protamine at the ready so that you can give that if required. What are your other goals of anaesthesia? Uh, Well, I'd be preventing hyperoxia because that's associated with vasoconstriction. Um, So I'm looking at 
sats of over 94% for the majority of people. Avoiding hyper or hypocapnia for the same reason. Um, so maintaining a normocapnia and being careful with my fluids. We don't usually waste time with putting an IDC in at the start and these cases can have litres of fluids flushed into them during the procedure. So I'm usually pretty careful with my fluid management um, and look at putting an IDC or an in-out catheter in at the end. All right, Wendy, let's say you were going to give a sedation rather than a general anaesthetic for Mm -hmm. a clot retrieval. What are the things to watch out for? How are you going to go about that? I'm quite conservative about the patients that I do do sedation on. They do need to um, be quite responsive um, and cooperative, able to follow commands and have no problems with their oxygenation or dysphagia. But if you do, I guess one of the benefits is that you use a lot less vasopressor. um, So it's a lot less difficult to, to manage their blood pressure. I've used a combination of lots of different things, low dose propofol infusion, low dose remifentanil um, infusion. I think you just have to be very prepared that the most common problem with sedation is conversion to general anaesthetic, usually because of agitation um, or patient non-cooperativeness. The studies have shown that that doesn't cause too much in the way of complications, so like vascular injury or anything like that, but it is going to delay things um, again. But low-dose propofol or remi or just a bolus of fentanyl just prior to the painful um, stimulus of clot suction or uh, retrieval. So at what point, if they are going to get agitated, is there a particular point? Or once you get past a particular point where you think you're home and free and you should be able to get through the whole procedure? I think with any sedation procedure, I've seen it fail just because the patient gets uncomfortable on the table after an hour of being told to lie still. So with the more complex, as I said, with the more complex procedures, it's not going to be your method of choice. And sometimes your hand is going to be forced and you're going to have to convert to general anaesthetic despite all of the the signs being positive at the outset. What do you do with patients at the end? So to where to send them? The ideal place is awake to a stroke ward, I think, um, but that's going to depend on the patient. And I usually try and um, think about how awake were they before the procedure? Were there any complications through the procedure, like signs of cerebral edema or anything like that developing? And... As long as they have some airway reflexes when I'm waking them up, that's also reasonably encouraging, even if their GCS is a bit more impaired than maybe we would think about extubating an elective patient on. So you're really always planning to extubate them unless there have been complications or it's a particularly serious stroke with a significant neurological impairment before you start. Yeah, or I guess any other reason why we would typically not extubate a patient at the end if we're really struggling with ventilation and oxygenation if they've had a big aspiration associated with their stroke. So also those other patient factors. So what's your take-home message then, Wendy, about clot retrievals? I think the two main points are time is brain do everything as quickly as you can, as safely as you can, and be incredibly 
diligent and proactive with blood pressure management. I think the, the evidence that will come out in the next couple of years will show how much of uh, impact we can make on people's recovery. So in some ways, this is a really nice anaesthetic because as anaesthetists, we can actually have an impact on the patient's quality of life. I think so. And we can actively prevent complicating factors in their recovery and their neuro-rehabilitation. Thanks, Wendy. I feel like I've got a good handle on these clot retrievals now. I'm going to be much more confident next time I get called downstairs for one. I think we're going to be doing many more in the future. And thanks again to Dr. Wendy Morris for joining us today. What a fantastic interview. Thank you so much to our special guest interviewer, Dr. Yasmin Whaley, and her interviewee, Dr. Wendy Morris. We hope Yasmin can join us again soon. As always, you can contact us at deepbreathspod at gmail.com. We'd love it if you could spread the word to follow us on your favourite podcast platform and even review us. And if you know someone that you think would be a great interviewee, please feel free to let us know. Thanks for listening and we hope you can join us next time on Deep Breaths.